ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Crimea, that dangling peninsula in the Black Sea, is one of the most contentious issues in post-Soviet space since Russia annexed it in 2014. It's a symbol of Russian effrontery and fountain of Russian patriotism, a ghost pain of Ukraine's territorial integrity and violation of its sovereignty. For the so-called West and Russia, Crimea serves as a key flashpoint in their confrontation. But as Konstantin Pleshakov shows in his short book, The Crimean Nexus, the peninsula has served as an epicenter for a clash of civilizations since the 18th century. How does reclaiming Crimea's complex history help us understand its present and future? Konstantin Pleshakov teaches at the Five College Consortium in Massachusetts. In 2012, the Princeton Review named him one of the 300 best college professors in the United States. He's the author of many books, including There Is No Freedom Without Bread, 1989 and the Civil War That Brought Down Communism, Stalin's Folly, The Tragic First Ten Days of World War II on the Eastern Front, and with Vladislav Zubok, Inside the Kremlin's Cold War, From Stalin to Khrushchev. His newest book is The Crimean Nexus, Putin's War and the Clash of Civilizations, published by Yale University Press. Here's Konstantin Pleshikov. So Crimea is such a contentious, polarized issue. Why did you decide to delve into this uh, topic? As a matter of fact, for a long time I wanted to write a book about Crimea. I thought that would be a history of Crimea. Why? Well, first it's a fascinating subject for any writer, for a historian so complex, so challenging, and there was, you know, something personal too, because my family moved to Crimea in the 1930s, lived through industrialization, great terror there, then World War II came, they spent almost three years on the territory occupied by the Germans, so all the stories about that. I was born in Yalta, Crimea. But for many years, I couldn't figure out the way to make the story relevant to the modern-day American reader. And then, unfortunately, of course, the 2013-2014 crisis came, and I was getting really angry at the at what was happening in uh, Kiev and. Uh, how American representatives contributed to the mess. So, and that was a powerful motivation. And that's how I started writing the book. And, and what about what was happening that made you angry enough to, to start, start writing this project that you've been thinking about for a while? I've moved to this country almost 20 years ago. And um, as I'm sure many people, I've been quite unhappy in the past like 15 years more about the, this kind of mindless intervention. And it was one thing to be 
angry about interventionism, uh, intervention in the countries that you were not personally connected with, like you know, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq. And, but it was a, a different thing when the same approaches occurred in the country where I grew up. And I must say from the start that uh, I do not oppose foreign interventions in general, on principle. And um, my main uh, concern, my main anxiety is that uh, nowadays when uh, the United States or Russia or many other powers intervene overseas, they have no clear vision of what they are doing. And that's what made me particularly angry about Kiev Maidan in uh, the winter of 2013-14. Uh, it was uh, a man-made disaster and that could have been avoided, should have been avoided, but it was not. And because of the multimedia situation, it was all unfolding in front of our eyes. Yeah, well, well, we'll get into some of the particulars of that. But I first want to ask you, in reading your book, um, which I should say is incredibly readable um, and, and quite a joy to read, much of your text seems to be about rescuing Crimea, its history, and the geopolitical drama around it from binaries. You know, us versus them, the West versus Russia, uh, however you want to be, you want to pair it. So what are some of these binaries and, and why do you find it important to shatter them in regard to Crimea? One important example would be the widespread misperception about who legally owns Crimea, Ukraine or Russia. One could call that a very false binary because uh, both for Russia and for Ukraine, Crimea is, is a colony and the whole conversation about who should own it is uh, misplaced. That's just one example. Well, but of course those binaries, they're visible throughout the history of the peninsula of the past nearly 300 years. First, it was European uh, Christendom against Islam. Then it was Russia against the West. Nowadays, it's Russia against Ukraine. But uh, the history of the peninsula uh, is uh, extremely complex and does not fit into any of those uh, simple explanations. Over the past three millennia or so, Crimea saw so many waves of uh, migration or invasion. Or... So it's really impossible to single out one particular ethnicity or one particular people who, could, who should be called uh, the, indi the indigenous people of Crimea. But having said that, Still, the Crimean Tatars, as we call them, they call themselves Kirim. They have been the dominant group on the peninsula for nearly five centuries and had a strong and viable state. We call it the Crimean Hanate that lasted till the 
Russian occupation of Crimea in the 18th century. So, how do you, where do you put the Tatars if you, if you limit your argument to just to the dispute between uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia? Another thing, it's also about binaries, as you put it. What's really disconcerting about the current conversation about Crimea in our North American media is uh, it's good versus evil. Evil Russia, good Ukraine. Mm, once again, that's very simplistic and doesn't help to see what's going on and definitely doesn't make the prospects for the future any clearer. You know, another reoccurring concept in your book is Samuel Huntington's notion of the clash of civilizations. And, and you deal with this concept critically, and in your section on Crimea's history, it's also used descriptively. Um, so how does the notion of clash of civilizations frame your understanding of Crimea? The clash of civilizations, we know it's a very rich but very vulnerable concept, but it's thought-provoking, and uh, it explains a lot about the place of Crimea in uh, European diplomacy in the past. So back to the first annexation of Crimea by Russia, Catherine the Great, Potemkin, and uh, all this stuff. So late 18th century, Russia invades, occupies Crimea, makes it part of the Russian Empire, and at that point, European powers are happy. Because Catherine the Great, a very, very gifted diplomat and uh, negotiator, she sells the annexation as uh, part of the struggle on the common enemy, uh, Islam, the represented at that point by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so, um, and that's how European diplomacy accepted that annexation, expansion of Russia into the Black Sea area. So in that case, that idea of a clash between a good civilization and a bad uh, civilization served the purposes of uh, Russian Empire beautifully. That's uh, one, that's uh, first stage, so to say. The second distinct stage came with the existence of the Soviet Union, when it did not really matter whether technically Crimea was part of the Russian Republic or the Ukrainian Republic within the Soviet Union, as long as it was just part of a, of a new state, a state that came with a new progressive civilization, call it Soviet or communist or socialist, and its opponent was the West. And uh, if you look at the reaction of uh, Western capitals at the time, uh, ex uh, again, it was not about Ukraine or Russian Federation, it was about Soviets and Crimea being an important part of the Soviet Empire. And uh, moving forward to the or to what's going on there now, right? Um, once again, it's been 
portrayed, sold, abused as a clash of uh, civilizations between Russia, a separate civilization, and the West, the so-called West, of course, right? And Ukraine that somehow managed to be considered pro-Western. I want to talk, ask you about this notion of Crimea as a colony, because this is actually a really interesting way to think about it as less something that, you know, is, as you started out to say, owned by Ukraine or owned by Russia, and then also it playing as this constant field of clashing between these two civilizations. It's like the struggle is over it as a colonial piece of property. I mean, first, do you agree with this? Do you do you see things in this way in terms of, of Crimea as a colony? And how does maybe thinking about it as a colony perhaps make us understand the situation differently? I must confess then that when I was growing up in the Crimea many years ago, that notion never crossed my mind. And I realized that only much later. But frankly, it's difficult to describe Crimea as anything but colony. Consider this. Crimea had never been part of uh, Russia's or Ukraine's geopolitical space before the annexation performed by Catherine II. The local population at the point of the, of the annexation of the 18th century. The majority were Tatars. There were also significant minorities of Greeks, Armenians, a bit later, Itali uh, a bit later Germans and Bulgarians, uh, and Bulgarians moved in. And of course, uh, there were Jewish communities. And uh, what empire does? It starts displacing them, pushing them out, uh, not by deportation at first, right? Uh, it was the economic pressure, uh, the redistribution of land, the introduction of new Russian law, I mean Russian imperial laws. So within the first six uh, decades of the, of the 19th century, the majority of Crimean Tatars moved to Turkey and uh, the Balkans. And so who arrives? Well, uh, mostly two Slavic groups, Russians and Ukrainian. So that's, uh, that's colonization. As settlers, yeah. The settlers. And then, um, in the end of World War II, Stalin deports every minority, not just Tatars, but uh, Greeks, Armenians, Bulgarians, and after that, there is a there is a fast organized uh, move of new wave of settlers, mostly peasants from uh, Russia and Ukraine, from the provinces damaged by World War Two, and of course they all move in, and uh, most of them and uh, all of them live on the land that used to belong to someone else just two or three generations earlier. Many of them live in the houses built by Tatars or Greeks, right? The only reason my family didn't live in uh, 
in a house owned by someone else was just because our our house was new, right? But the land where the house was, uh, well, clearly, you know, it was, you know, it, I guess it was, it uh, used to be Greek. So, but what makes it difficult for Russians and Ukrainians to agree that Crimea is, is a colony and uh, the Slavs who live there now are just the descendants of settlers, right? Is, uh, actually, that's a good question, why? Well, I suppose that's, uh, that's part of the general curse of the Russian Empire. It's a continuous, right? You know, nothing is overseas. Everything is on one uninterrupted chunk of length. So it's easier, it's, it's comfortable for people to think, okay, you know, it's, you know, okay, you know, it's possibly, you know, like 500 miles away from where my parents grew up, but it's still the same country, land, territory. So settlers, and also several generations of Slavic settlers grew up in Crimea, not unlike the French in uh, Algeria. Right, right. You make this comparison to them yeah. being like Pied Noir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you read uh, a novel by Albert Camus, right? When he uh, set in uh, North Africa, right? And he talks about that part of the world as uh, his home, right? Naturally. So it's uh, that, uh, I think that's a similar paradigm. Yeah, that, that's actually a really interesting way to think about it. Um, and, and then along with that, then... Why don't I ask you about your, you have this really interesting notion too of Crimea as a fetish. And, and here I think this speaks directly to the notion of it as, you know, a continuous land. It have some sort of meaning. In, in fact, you write that in Russian eyes, the peninsula has little function except as an object of desire. So how does Crimea function as a fetish? It's a fascinating subject, and Crimea's fetish exists in Russian or Ukrainian mind on so many levels, emotional, cultural, but uh, I, uh, I will possibly limit myself to the political aspects of uh, all that. One, Crimea has, uh, has been part of the Russian patriotic war myth, for nearly two centuries, since the Crimean War of the 1850s, what's remembered in uh, Britain till this day as uh, was the name of Tennyson's poem, uh, the, not the flight of the Light Brigade, the death of the Light Brigade, yeah? The charge of the Light Brigade. The charge of the Light Brigade, thank you, right? And, you know, and there are some other memorabilia of that war in our language, like the balaclava hat, right? So, uh, but um, what happened uh, in uh, Russian mind, despite the fact that the Crimean War was lost by Russia, it became celebrated as a huge sacrifice of the Russian people. The example given was uh, the siege of Sebastopol, and uh, the person who, in a way, created the myth was uh, Leo Tolstoy. He was there as a young artillery officer, and he wrote a largely unreadable book, The Sebastopol Sketches. I don't know whether you agree or not. 
In any case, um, the emperor of Russia at that point immediately saw the propaganda value of the book. And uh, I'm sorry, but that's how Tolstoy's literary fame started. So Sevastopol, or Sevastopol, as uh, the symbol of Russian military glory, martyrdom and sacrifice. Well, the thing is, in the days of the Tsars, in the Soviet days, and uh, of course in today's Russia, the overlooked fact is that the siege of Sebastopol, uh, the, the sacrifice of Russians in Sebastopol, was an absolutely meaningless act. And it was, uh, it happened not because of some feeling of mission of patriotism, but because the generals and officers of the Tsarist army uh, were mean and vicious and the soldiers were obeying the stupid orders they were getting. Uh, so what Russians celebrated there in Sevastopol was kind of collective suicide. And so uh, moving on, World War II, you know what, the story happens again. Uh, so the Germans march into Crimea and in a matter of weeks they control most of the peninsula except for Sevastopol. And just like uh, the Tsar Nicholas I had given an order to hold to Sevastopol at any cost, so does Stalin in 41-42. Again, needless casualties, yes, suffering, yes, sacrifice, but in the voluntary sacrifice, right? So, okay, but to make the long story short, uh, that's how Sevastopol and, uh, by default, the whole of Crimea came to be associated with patriotism, glory, and, uh, yes, in that sense, it is, of course, fetish. And there, I would also say there's a lot of nostalgia associated with it, too, because in a lot of the stuff I've read about say, Russians' attachment to it. There's a lot of harking back to the days of childhood, spending summers there, pioneer camp. Um, there's lots of talk of descriptions of the landscape. It, it comes across as this kind of idyllic, nostalgic period for, it seems, for many people's lives. Absolutely. And, and uh, the reason for that is that the southern coast of Crimea, where the resorts like Yalta, that's the only subtropical part of Russia. And it started as a playground of the aristocracy in the 19th century. Then the middle class moved in in uh, Anton Chekhov's time. And in the Soviet era, that was the, the most desirable place to go for vacations. It was not cheap, it was overbooked, and uh, so millions of families lived with the dream of going to Crimea or with the exaggerated uh, memories of what a great time they had there. And uh, so you're absolutely right, it's part of the nostalgia for the, for the past. Let's talk a bit more about the, the present conflict. Um, you, you state that, th that there seems to be a growing international consensus regarding the origins of the crisis in the East. The involved parties sleepwalked into it, having misinterpreted each other's agenda. 
Talk about this notion of sleepwalking and why sleepwalking as opposed to a more active path of confrontation between two great powers being US and Russia with uh, Ukraine essentially and Crimea functioning as a colony of each, uh, trying to flex their geopolitical hegemony. I'm arguing that when uh, some Western diplomats uh, started supporting the opposition movement in uh, Kiev in the fall of 2013, they had no uh, end game in sight. Possibly it's a bad thing to say, but sometimes I wish that this whole disaster in uh, Ukraine had been planned either by Moscow or by Washington. In that case, that would have been at least, you know, to some degree rational, but no. What happened in uh, the fall of 2013? A few important Western representatives, one of them was uh, Victoria Nuland from the U.S. State Department. They decided it would be a good idea to support spontaneous, uh, grassroots, anti-government movement in Kyiv. Basically make life different for the government, which is more or less pro-Russian, the government make life difficult for them, annoy Putin, and take it from there. And I don't think that anyone who was supporting the anti-government activists in Kiev in the fall of 2013 could foresee the coming downfall of the government, could uh, tie in Ukraine, and of course the annexation of Crimea and the war in eastern Ukraine. It's very hard to explain rationally. Uh, as a historian who wrote a lot about diplomatic history, international relations, grand design, I find um, that, that, that case, you know, the crisis in Kyiv, a rare, well, a relatively rare case when um, a great power would stir trouble on hostile territory close to the borders of a very strong enemy without any plan, again, without any end game in sight. I don't know what Gloria Nuland and others were thinking. What I know for sure, it was a unsettling case of an oversight on the part of Secretary of State Kerry and, of course, President Obama. After and then, when uh, unrest in Kyiv escalated and resulted in the downfall of a government that had been democratically elected by the Ukrainian people, Putin responded with the annexation of Crimea. That act, I'm arguing Putin's act, was also spontaneous. It's not like he had been waiting for a pretext to move in. Nowadays, some people say that, oh, you know, Putin had been planning that for years. No. Look at the logistical difficulties the invading Russians faced in Crimea in the spring of 2014. They were, they, well, I'm sure they had discussed the possibility in the past, but uh, they had not uh, laid down the groundwork for that. So, from both sides, 
I see that improvisation, and I don't think that Putin, for example, fully realized the consequences of what he was doing when he annexed Crimea. Don't ask me why, but I think he was under the impression that he would get away with it internationally. Yeah, in in fact, um, you know, leading up to this kind of stumbling into this this greater conflict, you, you know, it's also backed by twenty years of growing tension, um, particularly with the expansion of NATO East. Uh, which the Russians have been complaining about since 1991. And of course, the uh, the big issue that uh, seems to become a precedent, at least by the, for the Russians for Crimea, and that is Kosovo. So talk, talk and, and this is something that you mentioned a, a few times in your book, talk about the Kosovo precedent and its relationship to Russia's annexation of Crimea, or their justification of annexing, annexing Crimea. I mentioned before that that what's particularly troubling about the interventionism in U.S. foreign policy of the past two decades or so is that very often that interventionism is irrational and people who take important decisions seem to have to be absolutely clueless about their inevitable consequences. You mentioned NATO expansion, of course. Kosovo. So that's a tiny territory of the former Yugoslavia. And uh, after the wars of the 1990s, when Kosovo was protected from Serbia by NATO, mostly the United States, why endorse the idea of Kosovo's sovereignty and independence. But that's what American advisors and American diplomats did. So when in 2008 Kosovo proclaimed itself an independent state, there was a big split at the United Nations. So some UN members voted to recognize Kosovo, others did not. Uh, Why is that a dangerous precedent? Okay. On the one hand, this means that any region, no matter how small, no matter how recent its identity, is entitled uh, to national determination, independence, and sovereignty. Well, clearly, that's an extremely dangerous uh, a way of thinking even for Europe with separatism in Spain and so on and so forth, right? But on the other hand, Kosovo, the Kosovo president seems to be saying that national sovereignty for any unrecognized state or aspiring state, aspiring nation, uh, national sovereignty can be achieved only when it's sponsored by the great powers of the West. So that's a very unfortunate combination. That's why the Kosovo president made Russians so angry. That's, and uh, in, in many ways it provoked Russian military involvement in Georgia and definitely the annexation of uh, Crimea. Basically, the, the Russian side is saying, well, if you know, the Western powers can 
facilitate the sovereignty of a new state called Kosovo, then we can and in doing that, the I think the important element there is to prevent, you know, massive human rights violations and massacres and, and potential genocide, ethnic cleansing. Um, you know, Russia used this very same excuse with not only with Crimea, but uses a similar uh, excuse as a as a protectorate in Transnistria and Abkhazia and, and South Ossetia. Exactly. That's a that's a good point. Yeah. Let's go back to the, the 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 Crimean Tartars because you know one of the things in, in especially in this thing about binaries and you've you've raised this a little bit, but I want to talk about more about their current situation in Crimea is that. Within the grand narrative, within this big drama of the West versus the so-called West versus Russia, Russia versus Ukraine, however it's framed, this clash of civilizations, the the Crimean Tatars, the Tatars of Crimea, are their presence is erased repeatedly, physically, and or silenced. Um, so in your telling of Crimea, you're, it it appears to me you're trying to rescue their voice. You're trying to make their voice heard and their presence heard. Uh, and so talk about the, the Crimean Tatars in the context of the present situation with Russia's takeover of Crimea. What, what is the situation there for them? Uh, yes, I think, I think I'm, uh, I'm uh, reminding the audience that Crimean Tatars should have a voice, but at the same time, we should be somewhat careful when we talk about the future because the temptation is there here we've got a minority group whose rights have been repeatedly abused and so but if an outside power starts promoting the cause of Crimean Tatars strongly we could have another Bosnia in Crimea with the three groups, Russia, Ukraine, Tatars, now clashing with each other. That said, that said, uh, the Crimean Tatars' history is extremely tragic. As I mentioned, the final deportation of 1944, ordered by Stalin, took out every Tatar person from her his Crimean land at home, and they were brought to the Soviet Central Asia, mostly to Uzbekistan. Uh, they were allowed to return to Crimea only in the very end of the Soviet Union. By the way, at first, Mikhail Gorbachev, who is for some reason called a great reformer by so many people in the West, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev opposed rehabilitation of Crimean Tatars for several years. So most, most of them went back to Crimea illegally as squatters. They grabbed the land that was available, started building on it. Uh, so the thing is, is that nowadays uh, there are about 300,000 Tatars in Crimea, possibly less. They stand for about 15% of the population. So no matter who owns Crimea at the moment, Ukraine or Russia or aliens, I don't know, Tatars are still a minority and they don't have any chance of ever, of, of ever reclaiming their statehood, right? Some kind of autonomy for them 
is of course, of course, a must. Actually, Putin has been trying to appease the Crimean Tatars on the peninsula. Uh, yes, uh, promoting uh, their language, uh, their culture. Well, the culture, you know, in those harmless folk tradition version, right? You know, when there's you know, you know, some kind of you know, happy you know, dancing in the fields. But oh, instead of suppressing them, right? He has been well. I mean, you know, he, Putin and his representatives, they've been working with the Crimean Tatars community, establishing new connections with the elite, the Crimean Tatar business elite, which is not a bad thing, because uh, at least uh, there's, uh, there, there is no um, violent conflict between Tatars and Slavs in the Crimea now. And uh, also one more thing, um, uh, we tend to talk about ethnic minorities like uh, Tatars or I don't know, Palestinians uh, in terms of uh, culture, religion, ethnicity, that kind of thing. But in the 21st century, every group, doesn't matter dominant or a minority group, uh, is subject to sharp class divisions. And so one way of looking at the Crimean Tatar situation in Crimea is to see how they fit into the economy, into the uh, general class divisions on the peninsula, what benefits they get, what benefits? What benefits they should be getting, but are not, but um, are not getting at the moment. And um, I suppose that's uh, a more productive way of of uh, of uh, talking about the future. You know, well, uh, sure, autonomy for a small ethnic group. Ideally, it should come with territory, right? But in Crimea, that's, that doesn't make sense because even if, you know, at one point, you know, someone decides to give uh, Tatars uh, territorial autonomy, they would suggest them uh, arid steps of the north, right? And that's not where many of them came from. And in any case, you know, that's, uh, uh, that's not a good deal. But Tatars would never be allowed to build a territorial autonomy on the southern coast, which they want and which they technically deserve, right? So that's a complicated issue. But in my honest, in my honest view, uh, no matter you know what's the political structure on the, of, the, of the Crimea in the future and uh, who is the next. Uh, supreme leader or whatever, you know, colonial lord, I think, you know, so, you know, social assimilation of Crimean Tatars might be a good idea, you know, so that at least there is no inter-confessional violence. Russia's takeover of Crimea is often cited as a watershed in the post-Cold War order in Europe. 
How do you understand the nature of the historical period we're living in now? Oh my goodness. That's a, that's a $64,000 question. You know? That's why I'm asking. Oh, yeah, I see. Uh, so, well, you know, uh, an easy way out for me would be to say that I agree with Pope Francis, who says that we live through a Third World War, fought piecemeal, but all over the globe. Um, okay, so I will go for the hard way, okay? Uh, so I would say that we are definitely living in a pivotal era in international affairs. International relations are going back to normal. And by normal, I mean the existence, the competition, the rivalry between uh, several centers of power. Sometimes that's called a multipolar world, whatever. And that had been the norm throughout human history till mid-20th century. But uh, this transition to this new multipolar world is getting progressively vile. And uh, if I may sense, say so, what, what is shocking is how this sensitized we're getting about war fought by our military overseas or wars that our diplomacy our foreign policy endorses breeds and supports i don't really know what explains that because going back to the multipolar world i get it makes sense but this chaotic, violent period, okay, you know, transition from, from phase C to phase D is usually chaotic and violent. But still, this uncontrolled use of military force going largely unnoticed by the population of the great powers, that I can't really explain and I suppose that's possibly the reason that makes this spirit in history quite dangerous because uh, go continuing unchecked by the protests of the people generals diplomats politicians are likely to get carried away and so on and so forth so uh, going back to your to your question as you put it so i would call i would say that we are living in a transition but it's an extremely dangerous transition with the consequences that we are unable to foresee and the consequences are not going to be to our liking yeah that actually leads into my last question which is in turning back to huntington you say that one aspect of his clash of civilizations that is underappreciated is his stress on humility, which frankly is the first time I've actually heard that. Uh, I guess that is a testament to its underappreciation. So talk about this, <laughs> talk about this place of humility and how it can provide a path, perhaps a path to toward uh, de-escalation uh, between the so-called West and Russia. You know what? Uh, I think what happened is uh, in our uh, minds, 
Huntington's Clash of Civilization and Fukuyama's End of History kind of merged, right? But clearly Huntington is very different from Fukuyama and uh, he has some great things to say about Western civilization. For instance, he says that the very survival of the West depends on Westerners accepting their civilization as unique, not universe. Meaning, well, clearly, that you do not expect other cultures to be like yours. You do not proselytize. And even if you decide that you might succeed in a in changing a regime in a different country, you are doing. You should be doing that for strictly realist purposes: national interests, resources, security, whatever. Don't even think about transforming that other culture, that other country. Don't even think about transforming it the way you uh, think it should be. And Huntington also says uh, that all efforts to shift societies from one civilization to another are unsuccessful. And uh, it's interesting that he says that the very survival of the West depends on that, on, on that certain humility. Uh, I think that it's a, it's a very profound thought. And actually, had there been not that notion that the West, the United States in particular, has a duty to change the rest of the world for the better, there would have been fewer foreign wars or economic interventions or whatever overseas in the past 20 years. And very likely, many regions uh, of the world, Eastern Europe with uh, Ukraine, and Crimea, and of course North, uh, Northern Africa and Middle East, would have been more stable. And uh, when I say more stable, uh, well, I think you know one of the minimalist definitions of stability is uh, how many people die in any given country daily. That was Konstantin Pleshikov, an instructor at the Five College Consortium in Massachusetts. His newest book is The Crimean Nexus, Putin's War and the Clash of Civilizations, published by Yale University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review on iTunes or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.